0: And are you about between 6 and 12 inches from the microphone? I'm glad you finished that fucking sentence. Right. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to episode 18 of Double Reel. This is the second reel of our monthly magazine-style podcast for film nerds. Hopefully you've caught up with the first reel, had a brief intermission... And refueled ready to take on this mighty second instalment of Nerdy Film Chat. If you haven't caught the first reel yet, please do go back to your app and download and listen to it so you're up to date with all the features we've covered already this month. These include our roundup of news and spotlight on some of the films we watched this month, our classic and recommended feature on No Way Out, our hidden gem Wadja, the one that got away about Alejandro Hodorowski's Dune, and our remake hate watch of Assault on Precinct 13. Now in Real 2, we bring you our big conversation where we tackle a weighty topic and give it a fuller, i.e. longer, discussion. This month, we're talking about music in the films, specifically composers of some of our favourite scores, and also great soundtracks where filmmakers have put songs uh, and, and other bits of music in their films at the perfect time. So, James, we, we've talked a lot about sort of uh, movie music in the past. I think, you know, we've talked about scores, we've talked about Best Score Oscar and Best Song Oscar, but... Um, what um what do you think the 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 most important thing is for any movie composer to do in in a film um well
1: i think it needs to complement the film nicely i think it's weird because in real life you don't have you don't have a soundtrack you don't have a score kind of narrating your life no not narrating accompanying your life you know when you yeah. when you're driving there's not an, an apt song for that or when you're making dinner there's not like a there's a song for that but it just feels like the movie's a little bit naked without it it's like something that kind of yeah. just it finishes off the movie and gives it that kind of just that kind of of feels like it's given it that just like it's it's hard to describe the the right way to describe it. It's it's, the film isn't complete without the score. I know what you uh, mean.
0: I mean, you know, notwithstanding that there are some, you know, some people have have sort of experimentally done films with no music or almost no music. And, um, yeah. Uh, you know, and there are films where the, the music is, is really intrusive and you just think, oh, come on, you're just beating us over the head with this. Um, which is certainly something you used to get in sort of old movies. But I mean, when you think about it, there was music in films before there was dialogue because people would go and watch the silent films and there would be music playing along. I mean, it might be just be someone on a bloody piano in your local kind of flea pit in your small town or a bigger cinema might even have an orchestra pit. But before you heard people speak in the movies, you had music accompanying what was happening on screen.
1: yeah um so to go back to the point what do you think makes uh, a good a good movie score what's the, the most important thing about a good movie score
0: i think it's um it, it's i think it's often about the timing it's often about the way in which the music uh because often the bits of music that, that go into your films are called cues uh you know except you know there are a few exceptions, like uh, Sergio Leone used to get to Morricone to record all the music beforehand and then actually have it playing on the set while the, uh, the, uh, the performers were there. But on the whole, the music is composed to the film one way or another, and it's about the, it's the timing. It is almost like the uh, if you're in a horror movie, that the, the lightning has to strike at the right time or the door has to creak. All, all of those sounds have to be at, at the right moment, and they have to be the right sound at the right moment. And I think the music is the same um different people do it in different ways but you know someone is using a, an orchestra can use like someone plucking the strings of of some of the you know the string section or they can use uh percussion or different things but it, it's got to be the right thing at the right time and and timing is almost everything but it is about it is about enhancing the mood of the piece isn't it
1: yeah it's it's weird there's the I think a film can work without a score. I think they're, you know, interestingly, I think some some of the best ones maybe not necessarily film, but the one that s- speaks to mind is um in the battle of the bastards in Game of Thrones where there's obviously music leading up to it but when the actual battle kicks off to begin with you can just hear like horses and you just hear you know the thud of that. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a movie score, but I do think there are there are times where, where you need it. You know, it's it's there to build up the atmosphere that's trying to be created, whether it's a joyful atmosphere, a tense atmosphere, a scary atmosphere. Although I do think in horror films, the bet the most effective thing you can do is not have a score, um, when you it, can actually hear everything, as opposed to
0: some of it being drowned out with the score itself. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a case of you're making a very good point about a, a good composer, or obviously, you know, there's a film director as well, needs to kind of choose what to do with the music. Um, but it's it's about when when to have the music and when not to. I mean, we'll, we'll come to, you know, we'll do a little bit on John Carpenter later and Halloween but on his scores, but on Halloween, it's very interesting that his music is integral to the film, but precisely to your point, it's not there when it doesn't need to be. Yeah. There are times when you just need to hear a person breathing or you need to kind of just have the... Hitchcock said that suspense is not the bomb going off. Suspense is waiting for the bomb to go off. Yeah. Um, And I think the music has to be, you know, to be the same as well. And I'm not keen on these, you know, the films where the music is kind of just, you know, absolutely all over it, uh, beating you over the head. Um, There are, you know, by the same token, there are are times when the right music um, can take a scene that seems kind of not necessarily... I mean, if we take a horror film, because that's a good example, you can take a scene, or, or a thriller or anything, you can take a scene that isn't necessarily that sinister or that suspenseful, but then you add the music and you go, oh, actually, that's that's giving me a, a, a vibe of, of something really sinister being on the way. And that's an yeah. example of when you should add music, but there are also clear examples of, of of when you shouldn't for the same reason. There are moments when you want the audience to be like... Ah, and then something happens.
1: Yeah, I don't think... I don't know. I don't. I think horror is its own kind of genre because it's yeah. a totally different dynamic to certain yeah. to other films. It's the only film that makes you. It's the only film that, other than maybe like a thriller, but it's the only film that makes you scared. It's the only film that yeah. the only type of film that should make you scared. But
0: but you could um, you could make the same point with comedy, couldn't you? If someone's if someone's you know um, uh, adding sort of musical effects to to try and underline a joke, that can get corny quite quickly, can't it? Yeah. I remember there was a really interesting example of a... This isn't even a very good film, but there was a film called The Amazing Dobermans, and the whole thing was really off. I mean, I think we've had conversations before about things like Watership Down and stuff like that, where the, the tone of, of films a long time ago when I was a kid were often quite weird, and you look back and wonder what people were thinking. But in this film, The Amazing Dobermans, there was a master criminal who had a, a team of intelligent, highly trained Doberman dogs helping him commit his crimes. And half of it was like <laughs> a bit of a funny caper and half of it got quite nasty when the Dobermans were like biting people and savaging them. And the whole thing's really really quite off. But then they play this kind of funny honky-tonk, what a jolly heist this is music over the top of this while someone's <laughs> actually getting his face bitten off. And you just think, what fucking point are you trying to make here? So, I mean, it, it, it just goes to show, I mean, we I've, I've used a bad example there, but it, it gives you an example of how in all, almost any genre music can can transform what you're watching, you know, for better or for worse.
1: It's interesting, though. I wouldn't say of all the films I've ever watched, I wouldn't say the score has been particularly bad. Do
0: you yeah, know what I mean? Every, every, now and I, again, every now and again, a bad one stand, stands out for me. I, when we watched that Robin Hood remake with Taron Edgerton and Jamie Foxx, I, I wanted to find the composer and kick his head in.
1: <laughs> See, for me, uh, I don't know, I just... I don't notice a bad, like you can notice a bad storyline, you can notice a bad plot point, you can mm. notice bad acting, you can just, you can notice bad CGI, I think CGI is the most obvious one to, that stands out as bad, but yeah. I feel like you don't notice a bad score, I, I don't know if that makes the, the genre harder cases. for someone, but for someone to stand out, it makes it harder because there, I don't think I notice a bad score, so therefore for it to stand out it has to be really good, exceptional. There's so many good composers. You've got, you know, you've got the kind of old guard, like um, John Williams springs to mind because he's been doing it for fucking ages. And then mm-hmm. suppose Hans Zimmer comes under that bracket. Then you've got the new guard, you've got um, Ludwig Garanson, Hilda Gusner daughter. Yeah. I think that's her name. I'm hope, sorry if I've butchered it, but you've got yeah. it's such a competitive market where you've got so many different genres and so many different styles of approaching composing that. Because I, maybe it's just me that I don't notice a bad score as much. No, but I, th- I think
0: you're right. I think in the vast majority of cases, I agree, I don't notice a bad score. And, and you know, it, it, as you say, it, it, for it to stand out, it's got to be something pretty special. Um, also, I think what we've found, I mean, I, I found is that filmmakers and composers are quite good at learning what works with film scores. Yeah. And I think some of the, f- the film composers we're going to discuss, they've been very influential. And um, because of their influence, other people kind of know what they should be doing with their with their yeah. music to make it work um the and, and and to your point as well i think since people like scorsese have come along you've got you've had you know composers well brought in or filmmakers come in who've brought in composers with more and more links to some more popular music and rock and roll music um not just you know orchestral composers um Hans Zimmer was actually in you know a couple of pop bands and produced a a, a, a punk band album before he was a film composer and uh, now you've got people like Johnny Greenwood and Trent Reznor who've been in bands who are now composing music for films because I think filmmakers are well and and Tarantino's done the same thing with RZA that getting composers in from all sorts of backgrounds it's kind of blurred the lines hasn't it so it's a constantly evolving atmosphere. But to, to look at some of the composers we discussed, I thought we could discuss John Williams first. I mean, to us, he's the old guard because he's been going since about 1970. I think he did a couple of things in the late 60s. And he definitely yeah. links back to kind of the old days um, composing of music where um, you have a, an orchestra, you have a, a big, strong melody, and uh, essentially it, it, it feels like an orchestral composition that's been made for for a film. And there've been one or two kind of great moments like Bernard Herrmann kind of tailored the music for the film for a couple of Hitchcock films that he did and the Cape Fear music was so good that Martin Scorsese says he reused Herrmann's score for his remake and in a lot of ways John Williams was a was a, a the successor to that but he kind of dragged it into the modern era a little bit he still did films with like big themes the, the you know the the music of a John Williams uh, film will always have a big main theme which kind of goes back to something like you know uh the great escape is pre-john williams but everyone you know the you know mu- you know bands you know unofficial bands play that at, at football matches it's a da-da, and the magnificent seven score that we talked about it's like a hummable theme tune and john williams took that and just took it to a new level for for films that he did in the 70s that he's become incredibly famous for and he um He's won five Oscars. Uh, I think he's been nominated something like fifty times for Oscars, and he's won forty-nine
1: five. times. I'm looking at his compositions now. So his first um, score that he did was pro- it was a, for a promotional film for the Tourist Information Office of Newfoundland in 1954. But his feature film debut was in 1958 for a film called Dadio.
0: Wow, I didn't realize it went back as far as that. I thought he was directed 50,
1: by 50. Lou Place, and then it's from there. It's like a film every year, basically wow. sixty-one, sixty, sixty-one, sixty-two, sixty-three. Did, uh film scores for loads of different directors frank Sinatra's none but the brave and then yeah he's doing he's not really picked his director and then i think when does he first collaborate with spielberg he did a lot with robert altman um and then 1975, he obviously does Jaws and then Star Wars two years later. And it's pretty much just Spielberg, Spielberg, Spielberg.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, I remember when we went to Universal Studios theme park together in Florida, there's a, a section of the park, um, or certainly it felt like there was a section of the park that was the John Williams show, didn't it? Because you've got, <laughs> you've got the music from the film uh, that the attraction is based on, whether it's Harry Potter or whatever it else is. You've got that music playing in speakers where people are standing in the queue to kind of get you in the mood. And you've got the Harry Potter theme, you've got the Jaws theme. I don't think they do the Jaws theme anymore over there, but they used to have the Jaws uh, shark and they've got Jurassic Park. I'm sure they've got some Star Wars stuff and it's just like, wow. And I remember you would say, oh, John Williams is a fucking good composer, isn't he? Because we're just listening to his music. It's like, this is really good. It stands on its own as being really good. I mean, listening to some of his scores for this, I realised that what he did was... um, for me as a kid, I mean, the Indiana Jones theme and the Star Wars theme and the Jaws theme, these were when you're playing in the school playground, having a joke around with your mates and you're pretending that there's a shark in the water, you would do the Jaws theme. And if you're trying to be adventurous and jump off something like Indiana Jones, you'd be humming the, the Indiana Jones theme and Star Wars, you know, people would be running around pretending to have lightsaber fights and they would be humming the Star Wars theme as they did it. And I rem- the first film I ever went to see was Star Wars and Obviously, the, the, this, the text is scrolling up the screen. I was so young, I probably wasn't reading it, but I was definitely hearing that music and going, wow, something exciting and heroic and grand is coming on here, you know? And it, it doesn't happen so much these days, but John Williams definitely kind of mastered the art of of creating a, a big theme tune for the films that he, was doing. I mean, he did doing. He did the Superman theme tune for the big Superman films back then as well. I mean, he really was quite, really at the absolute forefront back then.
1: I think what stands out about John Williams is that, for all the films he did, the most well for me the most notable thing about them is the score. Yeah. So all the most iconic films that John Williams has been involved in, Star Wars, it's the score. I know the the kind of the um, the premise of Star Wars is amazing because it was a it's a space opera, but it's you think of Jaws. You think of Harry Potter. You think of all these things, and the most, the most important—not the most important thing—the thing that stands out for me is the score, and that's how good John Williams is.
0: is I mean, it's the music not, is perfect. It doesn't distract from the film either. I know exactly what you mean, but it while it's while it's something that you always remember, it's it it's it's it stands up on its own. But it's but it's 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 always a perfect match for the film as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's the fact that those films are iconic in their own right for different reasons. You know, mm-hmm. Indiana Jones. Um, the fact that these films are iconic, and also the score stands out for me mm-hmm. more than anything from those films is, is how good John Williams is. he really captures the essence of the film. Yeah, and that's what draws you in. You, you, you. When you think of when the like that's what I mean. They've been living off that for ages now. Like the Indiana Jones trailer, literally just has to have a, a kind of light, softer, slower version of the and that's you. That's you sold for the next Indiana Jones. Oh, film. Ab- absolutely, for, definitely. Same for the Star Wars trailers when they did the sequels. It was just like the the Tatooine theme, and it's. Da, 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 da. And it's like, right, that's me going to see it. Doesn't matter. I don't care what you show me in this trailer. I've heard that, yeah, and I'm going to see I, it.
0: I mean, what was amazing about a, a lot of his films was, as well as the big kind of main theme, he would often have uh other kind of very notable themes in the music. Like in the first Star Wars trilogy, the the Mark Hamill Skywalker, there was the uh as you say, there was that moody piece when when he's staring into the sunset, thinking about is he ever going to get off this planet. Uh, and then in the later uh, i think it was it's either empire or or jedi when it when it starts being used it's the darth vader march dun 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 dun, dun, dun. and it's like darth vader walking off a ramp is already quite dramatic but that music means that sh- that uh, the director can have a couple of establishing shots he can show you the officer looking nervous as as, as darth vader comes up and it it means that the film's just got more time to go yep, yeah, here we go here's darth vader this is a big entrance but that's Sorry, carry on. And with Indiana Jones, I remember when I first saw that the fact that there was just a map with a, a red line showing where all the different places they were flying to to get to their destination, with the theme tune playing over it, it was just like, I'm I'm, I'm excited about a, a map. I'm excited about a line on a map. Uh, that's just it's, it's it's how amazing it was.
1: Well, yeah, that's that's the thing, and that's I, I suppose Star Wars is his is his kind of baby with how iconic his score is. That, yeah, you know, you don't just remember the the role the opening credits of there's that there's the the bit of the end of phantom men the bit of the end of phantom menace there's the imperial march there's the bit of the end revenge of the sith a duel of the fates
0: that's amazing music that's that's terrible that's
1: that's the phantom menace and then you've got the the tatooine yeah i don't know what that song the, the twin sons yeah um yeah, that that's how I call it. The score is that you don't just remember, you don't just think Star Wars theme. It's like a it's like a mind map of just loads of different areas that yeah, that
0: score takes you to. Definitely, and um, obviously, the the story of of how he you know helped make Jules the film that it was uh, is kind of legend now. But we, we'll do it as well. Um, John Williams was going to be working on the score with, with Spielberg, obviously, um, but th- there were problems making that film. The the, you know, the mechanical shark wasn't working. Um, it didn't work very well in, 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 I think seawater, water, kind of interfered with its controls and they had a lot of, uh, footage that they were struggling to film because there was meant to be a shark in the footage and they, they couldn't use it. Um, looking back, that might've done them a favor because the me- mechanical shark looked a bit fake, but at the time yeah. Spielberg was struggling and he sits down with John Williams, which is why they've just begun such good collaborators since and spielberg says to john williams look i'm i'm i am i am can not show the shark as much as i want to i'm i'm i you know spielberg's obviously a brilliant director but this is his first big production he's you know um a lot of pressure on him and he asks john williams to give him some music that will help him sell the idea that there's a terrifying shark in the water and that people are in danger uh you know uh, john williams says i'll see what i can do and then with like two or three notes on a cello he um he creates something that's you know absolutely legendary you yeah. know so legendary that if you're if you're if you're having a little swim in the sea and some mean-minded bastard behind you starts humming that theme tune you you know it doesn't matter that jaws is a very um you know unrealistic portrayal of of shark behavior it doesn't uh, it doesn't matter that you know a million sharks are killed a year for every human that's killed it doesn't matter that you're nowhere near a shark you know most of the time you're in the water you hear those two notes, and it's and like, like, fuck. It's yep. the icy chill down the back of your spine. It also shows John Williams' technique very well because all the things that he does, he's very clever with it. And I know Bernard Herrmann did this stuff first because he used the violin, sharp violin strokes to make the, 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 the psycho uh, death scenes work as well as they did. Um, but uh, John Williams takes that tradition of using the orchestra almost like as his palette the way a painter would for like you know drawing a picture he's drawing people a picture using traditional orchestral instruments and listening through to his music what he does is you'll hear the string section or you'll hear the i don't know maybe it's the oboe some of those you know those more high-pitched woodwinds um that he uses to create the atmosphere and accompany the bit where he's running through the jungle who you know what's going to happen next um you know the the temple and the rolling ball at the start of radios of the lost ark and all of that and it builds and he's very good at kind of building using different cues and phrases of instruments from the orchestra to um, create the atmosphere. And then gradually the theme swells up as, as, as the scene resolves itself one way or another, you then get the theme tune swells up and you start running through the jungle and diving onto the plane. And he's just married the, I'm gonna have a big theme tune with this, this shot needs a music cue. And he marries that into a piece of music really probably better than anyone. With with John Williams there was a obviously he, you know, absolutely kind of control controlled the way film scores were. I think there was a little bit of a change in in the way music scores came about in the eighties. There was a notable guy called um, Michael Kamen who did, like, the Lethal Weapon films and a few things like that. I think, I think he did some of the other, like, Arnie films and stuff like that. And there was a more of a mixture between sort of the musical instruments that you'd normally get in a rock band or a pop band started to creep in more. If you you listen to Lethal Weapon or Die Hard, those, those um, there'll be a lot of, like, saxophone and other kind of instruments kind of used to kind of create more of a, an atmosphere, especially in, like, urban thriller-type things. And gradually, the... Um, the style of music that was being played in films changed not that john williams was outdated because he was happily making music for uh, for uh, for spielberg and other people throughout this time but i think the the conventions of film scoring changed over time and it's at this point that someone that we've mentioned a few times in uh, in our uh, podcast uh, starts to come to prominence and that's hans zimmer yeah I don't know when you were first aware of Hans Zimmer music in films. I don't know if uh, it was maybe The Dark Knight or something like that.
1: I don't really know. It's kind of one of those things that you don't actually remember. But it's, I think it's just when you get a certain age, probably when I was a teenager when I started taking more interest, when you, know, mm-hmm. you first download the IMDb app. Yeah. And you actually start reading, as opposed to just going, oh, that's Christian Bale as mm-hmm. Batman or... Um, yeah. That's Leonardo DiCaprio. It's more a case of probably when I started using that app, using the IMDb app or using Wikipedia just to find out a little bit more about the film, and I would probably see, oh, composer Hans Zimmer. And then you just click on me and then you're like, oh, shit, he did that. Oh, wow, he did that. Oh, he's done pretty much all of my favorite films. Um, Yeah, Hans Zimmer is one for me because he's so easy, is what the, my favorite composer for me personally, because he he's so versatile. You know, he, when you actually look at his filmography, you look at, um, you at John Williams, he does big fantasy films. He does, um, you know, science fiction, but mostly, you know, big adventure th- thriller kind
0: of, it's a big sound for big films, isn't
1: it? Yeah. Big sound, big films. That's the best way of putting it. Whereas Hans Zimmer's? he's won one Oscar for the Lion King, which is a travesty that we've covered many times. Yeah. Um, but if you actually look at the films that he's done, he, he's done Gladiator, he's done Inception, uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, Dunkirk, and then Blade Runner 2049, then the Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, and uh, it's. Just,
0: that's and, such a fading... And um, 12 Years a Slave. I mean, if you're talking about the range of films that he's done, he's done 12 Years a Slave. He's done, you know, what you would call serious historical dramas that, are, you know, require, you know, a, a big. A big blasting score like he did for Gladiator would not have been appropriate for um, uh, for twelve years of life, would it? Yeah, he's he's also done he's done Call of Duty, Modern Warfare two, so
1: Kung Fu Panda, The Simpsons movie. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. He just knows what a, sorry. No, go ahead,
0: mate. You he just
1: he just knows what a score is meant to sound like, regardless of the film that he's been. Not to say that you know John Williams doesn't know how a, s- a score for Star Wars is meant to sound compared to Indiana Jones, but. When you look at the score for um uh twelve years of slave and compare that to say uh Gladiator. Gladiator. is a very loud orchestral kind of um Yeah, it's score. very influenced by like Gustav Holtz's twelve years. Twelve years twelve Twelve Years a Slave is very minimalist. Twelve Years of Slave was mm-hmm. filmed with one camera and Twelve Years a Slave has a very minimalist score. It sounds like it's one violin or one fiddle, um, with occasional louder, bigger pieces, but most of
0: it is just kind of kind of like that one one instrument yeah it seems to me that Hans Zimmer he sort of bridges the gap between like the the classic era that John Williams came to dominate um of of you know film composition where you know everything's on an orchestra and some of the more modern composers that we're going to talk about later that use that use music composition in such a wide variety of ways and where actually for a scene there might just be two instruments there might just be someone there might just be some percussion and and a one other one other instrument just giving an an exact soundscape for something and I think Hans Zimmer I think um he bridges the gap between those two kinds of film composition if you see what I mean he also came I think because he started to come to prominence in, in, in film music in the late 80s he he sort of he picked up the mantle where as I was saying music kind of evolved until there was more kind of you know the a film school might have uh, keyboards on it. I mean, because you had Giorgio Moroder and Harold Faltermeyer in the seventies and eighties, kind of transformed things. You know, Giorgio Moroder is one of the few people who's actually been given Oscar um, recognition for an electronic score for Midnight Express, and Harold Faltermeyer kind of dominated the eighties with things like um, Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop. And then you'd have electric guitar playing on on the scores, and Hans Zimmer, I think, inherited that. He could do he could he could he could compose with an orchestra like John Williams, but he could compose with uh, a rock band's musical instruments, like Michael Kamen could as well. The first time I became aware of um, Hans Zimmer's um, f- uh, scores was in the late '80s. He started working with the Scott brothers. Um, he did he did uh, scores for Ridley Scott and Tony Scott. He did the True Romance score for um, for Tony Scott, where he's trying to recreate something that that Tarantino loved about um, uh, the Badlands score in. Um, in in black rain which he did for ridley scott there's a much more kind of guitar based um start to that music where because he's it's almost like he's he's, he's situational music Because like when michael douglas is on a motorbike in the in at the start of the film in in 1980s new york there's one kind of music and then it moves across to uh japan for the rest of the film and there's a japanese flavor to the music and he's almost kind of melding the music literally uh changing the genre of music that he's making as as things change on screen. And as we've moved towards things like the Nolan films with The Dark Knight and uh, some of the other stuff that he's done he did Blade Runner 2049, and the film scores have changed, but Hans Zimmer is almost, he's, he's, he's still at the forefront. And I think that a lot of people are following him. I don't know if he is the one who kind of changed the way music scores are, but even the music scores that have beaten him to an Oscar have often been doing a Hans Zimmer, like the Gravity School. Do you know what I mean? I think that was a decent score, but it was kind of, it was like, not, it was Hans Zimmer, but not as good, I thought. Um, and I think he did something better that year. It was here, 12 Years a Slave. And it's interesting that music, music, music schools now, they don't tend to have a big theme tune. They tend to be much kind of more, well, that well, while even, you know, like the Nolan films, they have massive, the score, the music can be massive for things like Inception, but you don't have, you don't have as big or expansive a melody as the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme tune now. It's kind of, it's fewer notes, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But Hans Zimmer has bridged that gap from about 1989 to now. Uh, And there are some big names coming through, especially these Scandinavian types, but Hans Zimmer's... I mean, he's he's massive. And there's a range of things that he can do. When you listen to the Gladiator theme tune, that's got a big theme at the middle of it. It takes a long time to get there because he's building the music through like a long battle scene or a long kind of fight scene in the Colosseum. But then you get to that... Duh, 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 no, no, duh, no, duh, that's at the duh, start duh. of the film. Yeah, but yeah, do you know what I mean? But while that's at the start of the film, there's about four or five minutes of building up like to the battle. Yeah,
1: no, I know what you mean. Um, um, but,
0: but then he does have a big theme tune in the middle of his piece the way John Williams would. But they some of his more recent scores the style's quite different now.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's what's good about that score is that it starts with the big kind of, I mean, I suppose that that sort of sound is probably associated with Pirates of the Caribbean now but um, because they sound very similar but that's obviously in the first battle sequence and then there's a lot of just kind of vocal music from Lisa Gerrard between mm-hmm. the end of that scene all the way leading up to um, the
0: first Colosseum fight—it's almost like because that big opening scene of Gladiator, what's happening is, it's like the, the the armies are gathering for the fight, and it feels like as he's watching the screen and composing or, or or recording the score for the scene, he's almost like gathering his orchestra for the fight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then it, and then it explodes as the action explodes on the screen. But nowadays, if you listen to the stuff like, I mean, I remember you you, you called out that how haunting Twelve Years a Slave score is, and and you mentioned Solomon. From Twelve Years a Slave, that's that's a very very low key piece of music. It doesn't have you know it doesn't have a full orchestra behind it, and it's much simple, but it, it's equally powerful in a very different way. And I think it just shows how versatile Hans Zimmer is, while also being distinctively Hans Zimmer. If you see what I mean, the way John will the way you would say that's a John Williams school, I think you can also say yeah, that's a Hans Zimmer school, to pretty much anything he's ever done.
1: Yeah, there's a real degree of subtlety to. His music, which is mm-hmm. interesting because he's done scores for like Inception. But if you look at all of his films, Interstellar
0: has moments of loud kind of. I love the big Interstellar pieces. theme. He's, he's used like really church organs, but also tiny. There are bits where it's just like some sort of just a clock ticking or something, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it's just very low key. Mm. Um, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> but yeah um i think what's interesting about hans zimmer is that he if he likes the idea of the film he will go and do it he um he doesn't you know he doesn't relu- he doesn't just stick with what he knows you know the mm-hmm. the, the soundtrack to to twelve years slave is totally different to the soundtrack for um inception or interstellar or blade runner 2049 um mm-hmm. you know what i mean that's what i think i really like about Jordan. Yeah. and because he's the best com- composer ever he's
0: um no well, film composer ever being pedantic, but he's a. Uh... Well, today's film composers seem to be like um, more of a success successes, kind of the classical composers of like 200 years ago. You know, if, if Mozart and Beethoven were alive today, they'd probably be doing film scores. <laughs> there, there are a few kind of people I'd like to mention before we get on to the more modern composers. I think in modern, more modern composers are a good place to kind of finish up to say, so where are we now? Um, you know those the, the Scandinavian ones and there's Johnny Greenwood and Trent Reznor but there's a few people who've been influential in, 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 in similar ways to John Williams and Hans Zimmer um, but for different reasons and there's been a few kind of interesting kind of offshoots of scores at the time I think people the first one I mention is people have started using uh, bands you know rock bands who've never done a film score before since the 70s people have said well why, do, why don't we get a band to do that score and um uh Dario Argento for his Jallo films used a band called Goblin for his um Tangerine Dream uh came in and did the music for a film called Sorcerer for William Friedkin uh and you know more recently Daft Punk did the same thing um and and obviously in, in a much more kind of flashy and camp way you know, pun intended Queen did the Flash Gordon soundtrack which is huh. over the top but perfect perfect for that film do you know what I mean um Probably the best example of that. And it's not really a trend in music. It just happens from time to time. And I'm not talking about people who've gone on to become film composers either as well as or after being in a band or being a, a, a popular musician. I'm talking about somebody who just did it and then went back to doing their, their job, you know, was uh, Peter Gabriel for The Last Temptation of Christ. Because he hasn't done many scores, um, but he, uh, he went and did The Last Temptation of Christ score for, for Scorsese, who's always got one foot in in music do you know what I mean and he got he got Peter Gabriel to do that Peter Gabriel doesn't immediately jump out biblical drama to you does he but he did the music yeah. for that and it's it's really quite beautiful um and and it's strange because every now and again a, a, someone you would recognize as a great musician from another genre tries their hand at film music and the results are sometimes you know very interesting um another example which I really liked was uh Philip Glass he did um He's occasionally done music for, for films. He mostly does classical compositions in an era when that's a really kind of fringe thing these days. Um, you know, it's only certain people who, who go to philharmonic symphonies who would go and listen to a, a, a Philip Glass symphony, if, if that's what he does these days. But he, he's done several scores, my favourite of which is the original Candyman film, because right. um, he it's quite choral-led, but it's so beautifully atmospheric, and it's just... The absolute, the absolute, perfectly de- judged music that you need for the tone they were trying to set with that film—that it's in a ghetto and it's horrible—and there's a lot of it that's to do with the this, this tropes of a slasher film because this guy with a with a hook, supernatural otherwise, is leaping out and kind of gutting people. But because of the uh, the, the the Candyman figure is a rather tragic figure and a very elegant figure. And the music evokes that in, in in such a beautiful way. And it's really listenable. I think mean, it's so listenable that um, I think they borrowed from it a little bit for the new Candyman film. And it's American Horror Story just bloody used it when they were doing one of their TV series to evoke a horror atmosphere. They just went, we're going to use the Philip glass music from Candyman because it's just so good. <laughs> um, and I like that little kind of side thing. The other two composers I wanted to discuss uh, were Ennio Morricone and John Carpenter. Um, yeah, they don't um, represent. I was going
1: to mention. I was going to mention Ennio Morricone as well. Just let's, do Morricone we forget,
0: because, let's, do, let's do Morricone. Let's do because he doesn't represent a trend in the way films are scored, in the way John Williams does or Hans Zimmer does. He's kind of his own thing, but he's obviously been huge in um, uh, in music composition ever since the Spaghetti Westerns, right?
1: yeah the uh, that is his genre if you think of spaghetti westerns you're going to name Sergio Leone and then you're going to think Ennio Morricone that's they kind of go hand in
0: hand um yeah and interestingly though I mean obviously because he's a big Italian composer he he's done he's you know Italy's John Williams in a sense because he's their go-to guy for any film which means that as well as classic films for people who know and love Morricone Leone you know branched out into you know crime drama with once Upon a Time in America, and other people like John Carpenter, for example, have used him. Uh, and there's a film called The Mission that he did. The music's beautiful for that. Um, but mostly, as you say, he was kind of known for that spaghetti Western style, which was very distinctive. And that's that wasn't classic Western style when he did it, but now it is because of because of him. Um, but in Italy, they're like, we've got a film, Ennio, will he do the music? So he'll do anything. I mean, no, Italy makes all kinds of films in all kinds of genres. And some of them have got Ennio Morricone music, even though... And he does it, he tailors it for the film. So if you get a best of Ennio Morricone, you'll get a, oh, what's this? And it's for some police drama from 1968. It sounds nothing like...
1: Nothing nothing like,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: Um, No, Ennio Ennio Morricone is obviously a legend. And you know someone, you know um, he's a good composer when Quentin Tarantino spent his entire career trying to get him to do a film with him.
0: Yeah, and Ennio Morricone finally got the Oscar he bloody deserved. Um, I mean, you listen to them, I mean... It, the sad thing is, is that a genre film like a spaghetti western was never going to get um, the recognition that it deserved when it came out from things like award shows, whereas Tarantino does a western today and people will actually think about it for, for awards recognition. Not that awards recognition is the most important thing, but I think it shows that people take the quality of those films more seriously now when they weren't as recognised at the time. But you tell me a better film score than Good, the Bad and the Ugly in 1966. I
1: mean, I... Did Did not win! Of course it did because he got his first Oscar in 2015. Yeah. And who the fuck won that year?
0: Well, they, they just weren't even going to nominate a Spaghetti Western back then. I mean, let's look but, it up, uh, Oscars. I'm sure I've, I've just been doing, like, kind of casual Googling.
1: I want to mention another guy who we'll mention when we get probably closer to the new... He's not the new guard, but he's not quite the old guard. He's kind of like, I would say around about the 80s and 90s, but I want to mention him in a minute after we've spoken about... Um, Two, here we go. Right, I'm at best score now. So,
0: 1966. Born Free, John Barry. Now, John Barry was like... Uh, Didn't a, get nominated. If, not even nominated, no. I mean, you, you look at some of the people that are nominated. Jerry Goldsmith, he did the music for Alien. He's a very highly regarded composer. These are all very old school people. Elmer Bernstein, John Barry. I just, I'm not having it. I'm not having it. I mean, I've heard, I've seen I've they'll. seen Born Free and the Sand Pebbles. They're all right, but it's good, the bad and the ugly. I mean, ecstasy of gold, man. What do you want? What do you want? I—that's not even the main theme, and it's bloody blows anything else that was made that it's year. It's a very
1: out of the water. weird genre, isn't it? It's, I feel like they're getting better with it now, but we'll, we'll talk about. I, I think mean, there's a, there's to-
0: always an element in the Oscars of giving like like things like cinematography and things like uh, makeup effects and stuff like that. It'll be like we'll give you a nomination if you were very good in the kind of film that we normally give Oscars to. And a Clint Eastwood Western in the 1960s did not fall into that category. A Clint Eastwood film in the 1970s, maybe, but not now. You know? Yeah. But yeah, Ennio Morricone, who's, he's, you know, Sergio Leone famously, when he was doing the, uh, certainly for Once Upon a Time in America, but possibly for some of his previous films, Morricone, the, film, the music was already available and he'd be playing it on set. So De Niro's walking on in Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, and Morricone's music is all about building the emotional mood. Um, and then, you know, the music is playing and Sergio Leone, who didn't even speak much English could say to, I mean, Ed spoke Italian, but you know, James Woods doesn't speak much Italian and Ennio Morricone could say, hear that, that's how you're feeling in this scene, or that's how the audience is going to be feeling in this scene, action. And, and that's an interesting way to, 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 to make music for films.
1: While well, we're quickly talking about Oscar snubs, there's obviously Hans Zimmer not winning for Inception or Interstellar. Oh, the fact that Hans Zimmer has only won for Lion King, which is not the the best score he's ever composed. Yeah, by twelve years as Interstellar, shot. Inception. Twelve years Dark didn't. Get, I don't think twelve years as they've got nominated. To be honest, hmm, um, possibly not. Um, when did twelve years as they've come out? 2013. No, Philomena, Saving Mr. Banks, her and the Book Thief got nominated. While Gravity won, and uh, twelve years they wasn't nominated. Um, but anyway. Oscar Oscar snubs are you know one thing, but you, it, it all just kind of it all depends on taste. But I think people recognise that Lion King is a bit of a a stretch to call it the best score
0: that Hans has ever done. If that's his only Oscar, that it's so common, isn't it? It's we when we when we did our big Oscar episode, and you can go back and there's two versions of it. There's the short version in the main episodes, and the the long version we did as a bonus. It's not just that people get snubbed for the Oscars. It's that when when you see someone's won an Oscar, you go, they won for that and not for the eight other things they've done, which are, you know, absolutely classic.
1: Yeah. Um, Obviously, there's the snub for Ennio Morricone. I mean, I I wouldn't say that uh, the hateful eight is his best score. I'm not even sure it's the best score from that year, although that was a pretty weak year if you actually look at the nominations. Bridge of Spies, Carol, Sicario, and Star Wars, the first Force Awakens, and he definitely should have won for the Good and the Bad and the Ugly. If you think of if you want to talk about iconic film scores of if, if no one mentions the good and the bad and the ugly, then you need to get out of that conversation. Um but if we're talking to- just quickly on the, the topic of Oscar snubs, I didn't realise this Thomas Newman has never won an Oscar. That's
0: right. We were talking about that- the Newman family, weren't we? And his Either his dad or his brother have won, but he hasn't. Even though he's done some really, really good stuff,
1: he's been nominated for fifteen, fourteen for score, and one for song. Now, you actually look at the ones that he's you look, you look at the films he scored and think maybe he should have should have won. A, the Player, The Shawshank Redemption, Cinderella Man, America Beauty, The Green Mile. In the bedroom. I'm surprised American Nemo.
0: Beauty didn't win, actually, given that that mm. was a really gone. Garland- I, I, I think it's an overrated film, but A, the music's really good from that film.
1: Well, um, he, did, um, he did Skyfall and Spectre, and Skyfall won Best Song mm-hmm. um, 19, uh, 1917. Um, they Sam have some, they had some
0: funny rules as well in the Oscars. We'll come to it when we talk about Johnny Greenwood, where they, they used to have a kind of unwritten rule that was kind of in the gift of the voters or the gift of the, the nomination gatekeepers about how much sampled music or music from elsewhere uh, or music that's been recorded before that you've reused for for this uh, is allowed to be on your new score and that can hurt a Bond film it can hurt a Tarantino film because the way he likes to kind of mix and match his music um, that might have affected Thomas Newman on um, on on Skyfall but uh, yeah it is a it is a it is a glaring one Uh, Ennio Morricone was actually nominated for The Mission in 1986 and if he was going to win an Oscar for something it would probably be that because it's a very serious it's a very serious minded historical drama Um, and the music is is incredible and he certainly deserved the Oscar for that when you look at the things that were nominated a Star Trek film was nominated that year I mean come on Um, you know and and I don't mind Star Trek. The other composer who deserves a mention, um, not least because he's been covered a lot in our podcast this year, is uh, John Carpenter. He absolutely transformed uh, uh, film composition, uh, and, and in a way, his classic film scores don't really leave a mark in the obvious way because he um, people don't do what John Carpenter did. You know, there's a no direct. There are very few directors who score their own films, if any. Uh, and there were the way he that he used synthesizers the way that it was almost like for for cost reasons back then because he couldn't afford an orchestra for some of the films he was making and he was always he was a gifted musician so he did his own scores um but if you actually watch a lot of films now and you listen hard you will hear oh yeah the the way that he uses percussion and the way that he uses kind of sort of explosive music cues out of silence and the way sort of certain, uh, phrases and styles and moods and almost like notes and keys of music that a lot of people have borrowed from John Carpenter. And his, his first really notable score was Assault on Precinct 13, which we're discussing on this month's podcast twice. Um, and that has a, a brilliant uh, uh, score, um, composed in like a day and record... Actually, composed and recorded in a day because that's all the time that he had. And what he did was he recorded a number of phrases... would that would that would recur so it was about building a mood and he was definitely one of those people who liked to kind of play his theme over like the opening part of a of a film and it would set the tone so even if someone's just walking down the street or listening to the radio or something else is playing the music that he's playing actually tells you what the mood is for the film and halloween is very similar like that because you don't have the halloween theme tune playing all the time it's absolutely iconic you don't have it playing all the time you, you play it when it's building atmosphere and then you'll have silence or you'll have he's he's he hits, he's hitting a timpani or he's hitting a synthesized timpani or a drum and and the actual music cue is you know it's a two second cue you go something shit's happening fuck off die um and then later when nothing's happening the atmosphere of the music will come back from the main theme because nothing's actually happening on screen but he's gathering the audience up to say right have you had a little break are you ready Let's get you back up to where I want you. Now we're diving back into the film. And he did that any number of times with Escape from New York and uh, Big Trouble in Little China, um, you know, In the Mouth of Madness is a really fun score because it's basically a heavy metal theme tune, which is brilliant. I don't get to see, you know, that's one of my favourite genres. You don't hear that very much in music composition, although you know, a little bit more these days. Um, and he's definitely been a hugely uh, influential figure. And his Assault on 13 theme tune... Um, was the start of doing something very new and interesting with uh, with film composition and there's a lot more electronic music like that in uh, in film composition nowadays were there any other composers that you wanted to discuss before we talked about some of the, the more recent trends well, I already brought him up. but
1: That was Thomas Newman. That was the guy I wanted to bring up just because he's been nominated for so many things and not actually won 15 awards. He's mm-hmm.
0: sort of like the Peter O'Toole of the composing world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. From a very talented family as well. so yeah. yeah. Uh, They've got like 100 Oscar nominations between them, the, the, the dad yeah, and the two yeah. brothers. So, yeah, I mean, I think partly because of the influences of Hans Zimmer and partly because of filmmakers like uh, Tarantino and uh, David Fincher and people like that bringing... New and interesting styles of music into it. We have a bit of a new breed of film composer now. Um, uh, Hilda Guanadorta from Joker. I think I'm probably uh, uh, butchering her name as much as you did. And uh, uh, was it uh, Goranson? What's his first name?
1: Ludwig Goranson, Ludwig Goranson from Black
0: Panther. From Black Panther, and it's interesting because when I remember the Black Panther music, I remember the uh, the soundtrack album, um, but the the score was very good as well, and these. There's a, there's almost like a it's a, it's a mini kind of invasion of the of the composing world by some of these Scandinavian or Nordic composers now, and you also have uh, Johnny Greenwood who's done a lot of stuff for Paul Thomas Anderson. He did he did an absolutely amazing musical score for um, uh, Lynn Ramsey's "You Were Never Really Here," which is a really underrated film, and the music is almost like a character in the story. Um, and Trent Reznor who's become like the go-to guy for David Fincher films, I think this, maybe The Social Network was the first one he did. Maybe he maybe he was doing something before that. But Trent, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross are this double act now for for David Fincher, and they represent this very new um, style of of film composing, don't they?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't particularly like their scores. Um, the the Academy seems to love them. Maybe I just mm-hmm. have a kind of chip on my shoulder about the fact that they won instead of Hans Zimmer in two thousand and ten for The Social Network, but. Mm-hmm. I do completely understand why you would go for
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know uh you know, a musicians who've been successful in the commercial market to make a film score for a number of reasons. You know, music is their bread and butter. Um but yeah, they, they seem to kind of represent this kind of I suppose they're they're not necessarily new wave in the sense that they're young <clears throat> compared to Ludwig Garanson and Hilda Gusna Daughter. I hope that's how we say it. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> But they've they've kind of got into it a little bit later. They've uh, they were obviously doing music for ages, and then they got into the social network it was like their first big kind of project, and they won for it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you've still got Hans Zimmer making excellent scores every year, but it does seems to it does seem to me that like there's a sort of shift as opposed from having an entire orchestra record the soundtrack. You've now got um, you know, people doing it entirely on like a computer now, or it's all done by one person uh, instead of having you know, to record a massive orchestral piece with a 68 piece band.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, obviously for the benefit of the audience, uh, some of you will have heard this. If you're listening to it on Spotify, we are featuring tracks from the composers we've discussed on, on this, on this episode. And we did introduce that in the, in the, in the previous reel. Um, there's a version of it out there, which has not got the music on it for people who don't use Spotify. Um but as you listen, we're playing the different themes, and what I've been doing is I've been looking on Spotify for music by these composers, and some of these more modern uh, composers—they, they, a lot of them—and I don't think there's anything wrong with this approach. They only really work with the pictures. They only really work with what's showing on screen. If you see what I mean, there yeah. isn't as much of a. Actually, you can sit and listen to that uh, in and of itself. I mean, you can, but I mean, if you if you think of Vangelis and there's the you know the end theme to Vangelis is just so powerful um uh, to Blade Runner uh, and John Williams's and 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 Hans Zimmer's uh, music that they can be listened to as pieces of music and some of these modern scores they you have to applaud the way that they use whatever they instrument or soundscape or almost special effects sometimes of the way that they compose their music to capture the uh, you know the mood that's required for a scene in a film but it's almost these days like these scores are so tailored to what's happening on screen that they don't um they don't stand on their own as pieces of music anymore
1: do you think movie scores are completely unrecognizable now compared to what they were used what they used to be are they totally different
0: it's 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 hard to it's hard to say because Hans Zimmer is still making music and <clears throat> he's while he's changed the kind of music he's made he's still out there and I think some of your big films some of your big um blockbusters and marvel films they still have the requirement for that big you know even if they're not using an actual orchestra they still have the requirement for that big orchestral sound to accompany what's happening on screen so there's still a lot of it out there um it's just these things happen in increments, really. You know, that you know they don't suddenly wake up and say, yesterday um, you were getting Elmer Bernstein's uh, theme to The Magnificent Seven that you could whistle along while you're pretending to be a cowboy. Uh, and today you've got, um, what you know, Johnny Greenwood scoring um, There Will Be Blood to sound like whatever nightmare is going on inside Daniel Day-Lewis's brain, right? It doesn't jump from one to the other so that you're shocked by it. It kind of gradually kind of adjusts over time. And it's been changing in, in, in incremental ways ever since um, some of the, like, the 70s and 80s films started to do different things with music. I mean, 70s films, a lot of had a a lot of uh wa kind of sound to kind of, you know, give, give an, an urban thriller a kind of feeling like it was happening for real. And every time something interesting happened in a Lethal Weapon film, someone would, like, blast a note on the saxophone. That was all different from... Um, orchestral members uh, carefully plucking or, or, you know, playing out a few notes while John Williams conducts, you know, so it's been gradually changing. And if you just, you look at them now, I think some of it is unrecognizable. I mean, I think Johnny Greenwood's music for the films that he does is really, really effective. Um, but listening to pick one out to to play for the audience on this podcast it was a bit hard to find one that you would say right just listen to that for 2 minutes and that's a piece of music that you can listen to whereas yeah. when i was watching it on screen i actually thought it was brilliant so it's brilliant music that is almost almost too tailored for as i said for the film but some of it yeah some of it is unrecognizable from what from what you would uh, um, from what you would see you know, even a couple of decades ago is that because films are different, or because? I think these things run in cycles. I mean, there's a lot of you know. It, it, this isn't a case of being nostalgic because, as I said, there's a lot of there's a lot of scores from the seventies that you barely listen to now, and even when you even when you watch the film, it's kind of a bit jarring. When you go, oh, hang on, you know. So it's not it's not that you know um, that there's always been music in films that's purely designed to kind of accompany what's on. I mean, Psycho, you, you know, Psycho, the music, you know, Bermud Hermes music for Psycho is really very much tailored to what's happening on screen. I think just conventions change. I think, you know, it's, uh, and it may swing back. Someone's, someone's going to come along and do something different. Um, you know, and who knows where it will lead. I just think it's, um, I, th- I think what it is, is that you've got people who have increasingly brought in musicians as collaborators on the music, you know, uh, uh, and, and on the film, so that you know, ever since someone like Scorsese or someone like Leone, and now you've got you know Paul Thomas Anderson and uh, people like that who are making use of the, the the composer in just a different way than they used to, you know. Um,
1: yeah, I'm just looking at the kind of the films that are getting nominated now. It's it's the films. So if you go say go to when. Uh, Okay, here's a, so when Hans Zimmer won Oscar '94, Lion King, Forrest Gump, Interview with the Vampire, uh, Little Women, and The Shawshank Redemption. I mean, the, I mean, from and then, from
0: memory, those are all still you know pieces of music that have you know melodies in them that I would recognise. You know, and then
1: we'll go to twenty twenty one. Uh, you have. Soul to Five Bloods, Mank, Minari, News of the World. So, do those films seem totally different? Because to me, they do. That seems like it's a different type of film. I don't know if it's actually because it's the nineties and those are the kind
0: of films that were coming out in the nineties. Um, I mean, I mean, just just for comparison purposes, if you look at the um uh the tw- the ninety second Academy Awards that honored the films that came out in nineteen sorry in twenty nineteen, um best original score nominees Joker by Hilda to won it. And I think that's very much a modern kind of Nordic, you know, school that's there to do a specific job. Yeah. Um, but also it had a lot of music off the soundtrack, you know, song, needle drop songs, which we'll come to in a minute. Um, And you had, you know, Randy Newman marriage story. Now Randy Newman is a, you know, he, he's done a lot of the music for things like Toy Story. And, and he's, I think he's more, a bit more old school than you, than you would normally have. And Thomas Newman was nominated for 1917. And John Williams is nominated for Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. So it's still a bit of a mixed bag, I think. But obviously conventions are what they are. I mean, I, I do think that there are far fewer scores with a big theme theme tune in them. And I saw a friend of mine, you know, talking about something similar recently. He's, you, you don't get big themes anymore. I think that's the biggest change. Unless you're doing something like Star Wars, which has a legacy where you have to have the big theme tune. I think even scores by people like Thomas Newman from 1917, which... It's still more recognisably film music as we might understand it it's still more film music in the way Hans Zimmer does things these days where that the the theme doesn't have a, a lot of notes you know yeah but you know look these things go in cycles who knows what's going to who knows what's going to come next so shall we have a look at the other the other part of our um uh discussion uh for this month which is the uh, the music uh that people have, you know, taken from their record collection or nowadays their, their playlist um, to add to to their film. And it's talking about, you know, great uses of songs and, you know, films on the soundtrack album. Are there any that jump out for you as, like, you know, films that are almost as famous for their soundtrack, you know, compilation album as they are for the film itself? Um, oh, I can't think of one off the top of my head, actually. Um, the one, the one that jumped out for me was Train Spotting. Yeah, because that was that was a social phenomenon when it came out. It wasn't just a film. The, you know, those. I don't think all those all the songs on there have like uh, aged that well. I'm not sure how many people um, are listening to Born Slippy by Underworld, right? But that album at the time was was massive. You know, Iggy Pop, uh, Lust for Life playing just hitting you in the head before. And then the next thing you see is some of the junkies running down the street. Um, that was massive. And there's, there's a song for every key moment in the film in that. And it really did, you know, it was a huge, it was a huge, um, phenomenon at the time. Um, I wouldn't say specific film, but Tarantino's very good for it. Yeah. Tarantino you know. is very good for it. So it's Michael Mann. Michael Mann does quite a few films where, um, I mean, I've got the heat, heat soundtrack on CD. Remember those kids? Um, and that's got a few good songs on it. Um, <laughs> Edgar writes into it as well he likes to he likes to drop a song in at times. Um, I mean some of the key ones for this when you know put my film historian hat or anorak on take your pick. Um, George Lucas's early film American Graffiti was absolutely huge for this because although he's known for his sci-fi films his first big hit was American Graffiti which is set in like the 50s or I think it's the 50s and it's about a bunch of kind of young kind of Uh, 50s teenagers and their you know and their cars and their lives and all of that and he evoked the atmosphere with about I think he used about 40 50s rock and roll songs on there and as we talked about when we did The Fog uh, at the beginning of, uh, of the year when we are doing the Year of the Carpenter, one of the films that is famous for its use of a DJ is American Graffiti because as well as playing those songs, there was a DJ saying, and hey, this is the Sounds of the 50s, and here's a new song, you know, here's a new song, rock and roll song for you to play, and something from the that era would then play over the soundtrack while the, the cast were, you know, living out their lives, which is definitely something that influenced Tarantino when he had the DJ, um, Sound of the 70s, playing over... Um, uh, the reservoir dogs so that that was a huge huge one um, other than that I think there's been some purple rains a bit obvious because obviously it's a it's a film where prince plays a character based on prince in a band playing songs so of course his songs are going to feature in the in in the the film but as well as purple rain being quite a successful film I mean it's got its flaws as a movie it's got prince songs from beginning to end when doves cry purple rain you know little you know darling Nikki. it's you know it's an absolute feast for anyone who likes prince um apart from that i mean one of the people who kind of pioneered this was scorsese because when scorsese came in and uh and started making movies he was he wasn't just a fan of movies he was a music fan he's a massive music buff so be my baby is a key song in uh mean streets there's loads of songs in i mean goodfellas is probably a classic example the soundtrack for goodfellas kind of tracks their their period so at the start of the film it's like lots of early 60s stuff um and by the time they're getting um getting into trouble with the law and it's all coming apart it's uh, it's eric clapton in in the 70s so you know scorsese is another one is really really strong on this
1: you might not like it but Flashdance has
0: a pretty iconic soundtrack well th- this is the thing is it does depend what music that you're into and i think once you go into um into the cinema and the lights go down there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure there's just good songs that work on work on screen cuz Saturday night fever i i couldn't call myself a disco fan or a bee gee's fan but Staying alive is a fucking incredible song and and the and the, the you know while saturday night F- fever was a hit um the soundtrack by the Bee Gees from Saturday Night Fever was an absolute musical phenomenon. I mean, it's a, you know, they, you know, that you know bought bought them their houses and put put all the money in their pensions. That was an absolutely phenomenal you know success. And it it is, um, it, I mean, it is interesting. There are, there are very hip films that are, that manage to do something like play songs that 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 are quite cool, like Gross Point Blank. Um, has a lot of kind of cool music on the soundtrack and high fidelity is very similar and then there's stuff like Tarantino where he he has um, something like uh, uh, the main theme from Kill Bill, which is a hugely flawed film in my opinion, but that music that's a, that that's a song or an instrumental track from a, a Japanese composer that Tarantino' has obviously heard of because he's got his his fingers in in all of those kind of bits of pop culture. And he uses that and he uses RZA to do the main um, soundtrack. And then he's got Nancy Sumatra's Bang, Bang, My Baby Shot Me Down. And he's always got that. He almost he takes old songs from wherever, like You Never Can Tell for Pulp Fiction and A uh, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. And he makes them hip because they're in his film. Do you know what I mean? He's got that retro feel to it.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna if we're, if we're picking one film, I'm gonna pick the Guardians of the Galaxy podca- a podcast soundtrack.
0: Yeah, that, I mean that that is brilliant. That is again, that is just a an, an absolute collection of hits. Um, I mean, I, I'm gonna sort of just list some of my favourite um, uh, needle drops from films where things have actually been made into you know a classic because of that combination of film and um, film and TV, and I think they they tell their own story. The theme from Shaft by Isaac Hayes. I mean, you, the film is never going to live up to that theme tune. I mean, that, that theme tune is so fucking good. Um, Michael Mann had a couple of good ones, New Dawn Fades, a Moby cover. I don't even like Moby, but his cover of Joy Division's New Dawn Fades in Heat was really good. That's what's playing when um, Al Pacino is following uh, Robert De Niro on the on the road and invites him to go for a cup of coffee. Uh, that Also, he uses an audio slave song called Shadow on the Sun for when the, the coyote appears on the street in Collateral and Tom Cruise stops to stare at it. Um, Quentin Tarantino's Across 110th, well, use of Across 110th Street um, was absolutely amazing in uh, in Jackie Brown. It's it starts and finishes the film. And at the beginning it's just kind of a it's got a mournful song and it comes from a film called Across 110th Street and it's about kind of the junkie life or the pimp life in in New York It's a Bobby Womack song. I know you don't you don't like Bobby Womack personally, but it's a great track. It gets used in American Gangster as well for for that purpose. But Tarantino completely repurposes the song. And he's got it playing over people being scanned in the airport. And again, it's an example of a really kind of banal um, activity. People are just, you know, having their bags checked and going through the Mm -hmm. gate and getting off the plane. But he plays that. It's just to say, guys, you're about to watch something special here. And then at the end, when it's the song being played over... Pam Grier's exit from the film with all of the emotion that she's got going through her and she starts lip syncing along to the song in her car as, the, as it plays on the radio. It's, and then the close-up gets ever, ever closer on uh, uh, Pam Grier. That's just incredible. you got any like individual you you know songs in films that stand out for you that you know made made the film for
1: you really make the film made the film more bearable but the two the two moments in Watchmen,
0: yeah those are those are great um great great bookends to a film that's very disappointing in the middle but the times they are changing at the start that montage it's straight out of the uh the comic book isn't it it's it's yeah it's like a really
1: nice sandwich it's like it's like a really nice brioche bun that's and toasted really delicately, so you've got the top part of the bun that's great, and the bottom of the bun's just got this lovely kind of kind of buttery, tasty, oily, but still kind of light feel to it. But the problem is the bun is surrounding a shit sandwich. That's um, right, yeah.
0: I mean there are bit there are bits in, in Watchmen that I like, but they're all where Zack Snyder stuck to the original story. Um, and for yeah. example the ending when it feels like the world's about to end and the nuclear the nuclear button is going to be pressed and Jimi is All Along the Watchtower, which is a, obviously a cover of a Dylan song. So that juxtaposition of the two, you know, a Bob Dylan song at the beginning and a Bob Dylan song played by Jimi Hendrix with that just greater atmosphere to it. And uh, I don't know what um, All Along the Watchtower is really about, but it does feel like an end of the world song. And it's just, it's very, very well timed there. But again, both of those are in the original comic books. You can't give Zack Schneider too much credit for that because literally those, both of those songs are actually um, uh, at least suggested or actually featured in the, uh, in the original graphic novel. I'll have to go back and look at it to remind myself. A couple that are obviously very famous now is the Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack for The Graduate. Um, that was almost as famous as the film at the time, The Sound of Silence and Mrs. Robinson. They were big films. Um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is one of my favourite films, and the ending of that has got um uh Everybody's Got On In Sometime by Beck. It's a cover version, but it's just this really quite sad but somehow hopeful, somehow clinging on to something uh aspect to it, which really it just sets off what's happening on screen perfectly. That's a good one of mine. And obviously the piano exit of Layla over the end of Goodfellas is a classic. I mean when I when I asked on the socials for you know, what's an example of a good use of a song in a movie? So many people just bounce back. Layla, 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 Layla. Yeah, good yeah. fellas. <laughs> Any others for you?
1: Um, I really enjoyed the start of Suicide Squad. The new one, not the old shit one. Um, yeah. With The Folsom Prison Blues. I thought that was really good. Yeah. Um, now that you've put me on the spot, I can't actually think of one. <laughs>
0: no, I know it's hard. Just yeah, Look, I'll, I'll say a few more or maybe I will like... Uh, like uh, inspire a couple that you said obviously take my breath away in top gun was a big a big hit at the time i mean it's it's all cheese but it works in the film i think bond themes have their own kind of place in film history um but i think a good example of one that works well there is live and let die because the the theme or the the, the melody for that song is actually then featured throughout the film in some of the better action sequences so that that was a good one um I tell you, it's good. It's it's a bit of a cheat because it's a biopic about NWA, so of course it's going to feature in there, and it's the title of the film. But when "Straight Outta Compton" is played in the film "Straight Outta Compton," I mean that's one hell of a needle drop because it just kicks off the whole film so beautifully, the, especially the way that the way where the way it starts and kicks people, you know, in the back of the head, you know. I
1: feel like we're missing one.
0: Well, I mean, there are some big ones. I mean, The Doors' uh, song "The End" at the beginning of Apocalypse Now. Um, where is my mind at the end of Fight Club is huge and i I tell you what I also liked was um, although it's actually performed by Leslie Odom Jr in, in the film at the end of uh, One Night in Miami when Sam Cooke's character sings A Change Is Gonna Come uh, at the end to kind of give you the epilogue to that film I thought that was really good as well
1: yeah uh, does that count though?
0: I don't know. Um, I, I'd like to count it because I like Sam Cooke, and I know you love Sam Cooke. I mean, Sam Cooke's featured very prominently in, in in films as well. I mean, there's a great use of uh, Wonderful World in in Witness. Um, Harrison Ford starts dancing with the um, Kelly McGillis to that music in there, and she's Amish. She's never heard rock and roll. That was uh, that was a really nice moment. Um, I'd obviously like to give a special mention. We've mentioned this before, but the use of Johnny Cash is hurt. In the trailer for Logan, uh, although it's not a film itself, it is one of the greatest pieces of of music married to pictures from a film that I've ever seen.
1: I would say that the end isn't even the best use of a song in Apocalypse Now, because I'd say uh, Rise was it Ride of the Valkyries.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously it's that, that bare use of it. Yeah, I mean that is incredible. I mean we. It doesn't immediately spring to my mind because you know we've been talking about kind of modern bands and Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries is a classical piece, but yeah, when that when that plays, that is again, that's that's something that people always remember from from that movie. Um, there's various ones, and it, and it does tend to you know it depend what kind of music you like. I mean, I really like although it's a kind of an average film because I'm a bit of a metal head. I like the way Shoot 'Em up. used lots of rock and metal bands, um, including if you want blood by AC DC as Clive Owen jumps out of a plane and starts killing people in, in huge numbers. I thought that was good. Huh. Um, Perfect day in train spotting is a huge moment. Um, the use of separate ways in both the Tron films by journey. And it's funny cause it doesn't even have to be um, a, a great song because you know, boogie nights. Yeah there's uh two very kind of middle of the road soft rock songs featuring in in the, the big scene of Alf Molina towards the end when that cocaine deal goes wrong and it's Sister Christian by Night Ranger and jesse's girl um by i can't remember the guy 's name now but uh they 're kind of average songs, but the way they the way they are used in the film elevates both the song and that scene from the film in a really kind of strange way um other than that, I mean, p- people use the songs for different reasons. I mean, uh, Inner Gada de Vida um, in Manhunter is used by the serial killer to attack a blind woman because it's just such an aggressively oppressive piece of music, you know, and um, low in Tropic Thunder when Tom Cruise's character is kind of doing horrific <laughs> dancing to world, hip-hop. Yeah. It, it's like, it, it, it just shows what you can do with a piece of music depending on what you're trying to do to the audience, you know? Uh, I liked um, the Kenny Rogers uh, song uh, Just Got In To See What Condition My Condition Is In in Big Lebowski as well. Um, Because it was just, you know, the Coen brothers are just trying to create that kind of trippy atmosphere to the strange kind of hallucination that Jeff Bridges is having at that exact moment. Um, And sometimes people have songs written specifically for films which become classics. Um, uh, Fight The Power by Public Enemy was especially written for do the right thing for spike lee. He approached Public Enemy and said I need I need a song for this film that I'm doing about racial tensions in uh, in New York today and uh, Public Enemy stepped up to the to the bat and gave and gave them you know probably their best song. Um I'm sure there are hip hop fans who think what a what a is only mentioning the song he's heard of but I think it's a tremendous uh-huh. um but Radiohead wrote exit music for a film specifically for the Leonardo DiCaprio Romeo and Juliet film. Um which has a, a, really, a really wonderful atmosphere to it. But again, I mean, there, there are endless, endless, endless examples, and people have done this in any number of ways. I mean, on the socials, a lot of people mentioned the use of various songs in uh, Vietnam films, like uh, Louis Armstrong in uh, in Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah. Because it's the... the uh, And that's classic. I mean, some of these things became massive cliches in Vietnam films, which um, were so perfectly parodied in, uh, in Tropic Thunder. Because the idea of playing Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World while Napalm is being dropped on villages in, in Vietnam is just... It was it was very well done at the time by Barry Levinson, but it, it became... It's so easy to do, isn't it? Pick a song. I mean, they did it with White Shade of Pale in another Vietnam drama. Um, and it's so easy to take a song that's quite beautiful and sounds hopeful and sounds sweet and show it over footage of really bad shit happening. It's really easy and it's, it shows the kind of facile way that lesser filmmakers have tried to do vietnam you know um but also a couple of great we talked about pockets now platoon's got a good soundtrack um it all just depends what you're into i mean because there are you know songs that if if someone makes good use of a song that you hate in a film that's not going to work for you is it
1: yeah i agree it's um i'm trying to rack my brain I i think that's all i've got um I think the best use of a song is probably times they are changing in Watchmen, but it yeah. feels bad to give it to that film because that film shit. But well, it's, no, it's I...
0: yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You know, a good needle drop is easier to do than a good film. I think sometimes.
1: Yeah, I think it does. It does a similar thing to the score. You want the audience to feel something, whether it's uh, it's a certain emotion or create a certain atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there to accentuate. So if you use a song ironically, um, um, or you're using a song that just fits the moment really well. Um, as opposed to having an entire score made for the film, you just think, right, I really need this song there.
0: Um does different things. There's a film called Fallen with Denzel Washington. And uh, the the very interesting uh, idea in the film, which is otherwise not very good, is that this person at the start of the film is a serial killer, except he's not a serial killer. He's possessed by an immortal demon who who possesses people's bodies, takes them over and makes them into killers. Uh, and when the serial killer is executed on the electric chair, he dies. But at the um, at the last minute, the um, the demons leaves the body, the demon spirit leaves the body of that person and jumps to the next person. Um, so Denzel Washington plays the cop. He's trying to catch the bad guy. And how oh, do you catch, I've seen this. How do you year. catch the bad guy when he moves from person to person? And the motif they use for this is that the demon is always singing "Time Is On My Side" by the Rolling Stones. And when he dies, someone else is touched or the you know the, the, the demon goes into the next person and that person starts singing Timers on my side. And there's quite an effective scene where the demon is jumping from person to person chasing Denzel Washington. And each person starts singing Timers on my side as they get near to Denzel Washington. And it's quite it's quite effective and in a film that otherwise doesn't quite work. It's directed by a guy called Gregory Hoblet who specialises in interesting films that don't quite work. Um, but I, I remember thinking... Uh, imagine at the end of that film as you're walking out and one of the audience members starts singing Time Is On My Side it would just give you a little bit of a shock do you know what I mean similar to I finally got to see Clockwork Orange at the the cinema um, after it was uh, after it was sort of banned or unrestricted and I did find myself singing singing in the rain as I walked home (laughs) from the cinema and it's just a little it just shows you what music can do you know like you say, I mean, we've. I think we've done. I think we've discussed enough of those films to show you, you know, classic needle drops um, that have been interesting in films. And there will be people listening who go, "Oh, you didn't mention that. We didn't mention that one." Because there are just so many. There are thousands and thousands. But I think um, at their best, they can really do something very interesting in a film. Even a bad film can be made better by a song like that, and a classic film like Goodfellas can have you know, can be made timeless because Scorsese is such a good judge of a song, you know? Yeah, no, totally agree. Okay, so that is our um, summary of music and films. There's plenty more out there for people to listen to. I mean, some people have already gotten in touch on the socials to talk about their favorite music and their favorite composers and films. We mentioned a couple of their of those, but if you have any more, um, please uh, please jump in. Uh, and as I mentioned previously, there's a version of this on Spotify that has selections of the music we've talked about in here. Um, there is a uh, slight limitation to the way Spotify works is that you have to have the um, the full track. You can't do like Radio 4 and like fade in after 30 seconds uh, and start talking about it. You have to play the whole song because it's a licensing thing. So some of the some of the songs and pieces of music I'd like to have played, I haven't because they're quite long. The end by the doors is 11 minutes long and I think we might lose the audience if we played that in its entirety before we started talking again. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson.
1: The podcast was edited in Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM. We are grateful for their continued
0: support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod.
1: Wadja is available to watch on Netflix as of October 2021 and is widely available to buy on Blu-ray and DVD.
0: The story of previous Dune projects is documented in various books and online articles and the documentary film Hodorowski's Dune.
1: Outside of Double Reel, you can find us both hosting a new non-film related podcast the Adamson's Versus. Our first episode, The Adamson's Versus, The Taliban on Pedlos, is out now. So this is me, James
0: Adamson, signing off, and this is me, James Adamson, signing off. Your next podcast episode will be our regular episode 19 next month. Keep an eye on the socials for any bonus or special episodes we decide to do in future. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media.
1: Oh, I don't have a handsomer sign off. Um, um, fuck, pretty Patel. <laughs> That'll do.